1: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 93. This week's feature, Legacy Other Games. We'd like to thank our Patreon backer, Eric Johnson. Thanks to Eric, we all have a seat at the table this week. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at DicetowerNetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel.
3: And this is Drew.
1: Welcome to the episode, everyone. So glad to have you join us here again this week. We have a great episode for you and a special new feature. Blank Other Games. So in this feature, we're going to talk about some brand new games that are out there in the industry and how those mechanics can be taken and used in other current games that are out there. Hopefully, this will spur discussion and that maybe... Just maybe these mechanics will find themselves in other games that we love. So for this week's feature, we're going to legacy other games. And we'll talk a little bit more about what the legacy mechanic is all about. But you've probably seen it before in Risk Legacy and the most recent Pandemic Legacy. So before we get into all of that, we wanted to give our great host, Daniel, a little bit of a song here happy birthday Birthday to to you you. happy birthday to you yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's right it's daniel's birthday and we're so glad to have him obviously joining us back again here on the episode this week well daniel i'm sure that everybody at the table here whether they're joining you on the podcast or listening at home would like to wish you a very happy birthday
2: thank you everyone it's really been uh been a good year and it's been a lot of fun being here on the podcast and so uh I'm really enjoying it. So looking forward to another one coming up.
1: All right, but that's not it. Now Drew is going to get up on the table. He's going to give you a little bit of a song and dance.
2: (laughs) I don't know
1: about where this is going, (laughs) guys. Come on, guys. Come on. Man,
3: no tap dancing. Definitely no tap dancing.
1: But uh, happy birthday, Daniel! Daniel, Daniel, (laughs) Daniel. Shout it from the tabletops. Sir, you're going to need to get down from there.
3: Well, we got a lot of things to talk about that we've seen on our Twitter feed the past week. A couple interesting things about com, great humorous site, that actually has a lot more tra- trailer going around the internet about a movie made in Russia based on the game Mafia, which you know is another version of the more familiar game Werewolf. And it's not a movie inspired by it, but a movie actually based on it, where the mechanic of Mafia or Werewolf is played out in the movie. It's, as most trailers are, it seems exciting and fast-paced, but if you really think about what the heck are they going to be able to do with this? And you realize, I think the trailer is as good as it gets. It seems like most every time they try and do a movie based on a game, it just goes nowhere really fast. I mean, I watched Battleship waiting for these big red and white pegs to come crashing down into the ships, but it never happened. It's just disappointing. It's a letdown. But getting to more brighter news, the future is all digital, guys. We know that. We see it coming. But you know what? Board games aren't going to run away. Board games are going to embrace the digital future. There was an interesting article in techinasia.com that uh, talked about the increasing uh, blending of digital with traditional board games. We've seen it with XCOM, very popular game, a very um, well-received use of it. Do you think that this is a trend that's going to continue? Are board games going to embrace the digital world even more?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's interesting, too, because those two games, XCOM and Alchemist, uh, which you didn't mention, what was the other big release last year that did this, kind of got everybody either really excited or really on borderline upset <laughs> concerned about the future of board games. It's important to note too that there hasn't been another game since then that does this. So, it seemed like a big hot trend, but it hasn't really panned out, at least not in 2015 or anything announced for 2016 yet, but I think it's something that's going to continue and for like one of two good reasons. First of those is that cardboard has like a limited spread. I mean, we don't know what that limit is yet, but Everybody owns a tablet. Everybody owns a phone. And if the quarter million installs of Carcassonne on Google phones is any indication, there's a big opportunity there for board game companies to get their games in front of people on mobile devices. So whether that means like a built-in game just for the tablet or a port of an existing game or a game that starts on the tablet and comes back. Star Realms was always very interesting to me because I played the the app well before I purchased the card game. And I think a lot of people did because the app came out before it was easy to find that card game. Things like that are going to keep happening. On the other side, there are some games that would be almost infeasible or just unfun to play if you didn't have some kind of component. So
3: yeah, I know certain things are vital to gameplay. You have to have that. I I would like to see it also involved in sprawling storytelling games like Betrayal and House on the Hill or Tales of the Arabian Nights, where having a digital component makes gameplay so much smoother, so much easier to follow. We're talking about more than just basic apps like scorekeeping apps or something, but something that's really hardwired into the game definitely is the future for that. Something very specific in the digital world I've been following, I know a report on this a number of months ago, a Bitcoin-based collectible card game called Deckbound. And they've been developing that even further now. And they created a platform called Bitbind, for the, the trading and uh, lending and uh, selling of virtual cards in this set. I know something like, uh, like this is being done by Hearthstone, but this is going to give market value to the cards involved in this. So they're embracing the market. Does this sound like some sort of fad, or is it something that gamers could embrace? Like, could Magic players, would Hasbro even adopt a digital platform
2: like Like this? Well, it's an interesting question because the way that Hearthstone developed was specifically to avoid this kind of secondary market. They argue, at least, that it's destructive to the hobby overall. And while they probably were primarily thinking about being able to sell you more copies of cards because that's what these companies do, right? I actually think they might be right. The sort of runaway inflation prices you get with certain, like, super rare cards, it's all not very fun. It adds this weird may-the-richest-man-win element to the game that I don't really enjoy and I don't think is good for a gaming environment in general, right? Hearthstone, yeah, sure, if you spend more money, you have a better chance of getting all the rares you want and that sort of thing. But you can't have what used to happen, like, when I was a kid playing Magic. You'd walk in, you'd see that one kid who's... You know, since I was really young at the time, like their mom spent $500 buying them a deck <sighs> offline. And you're saying, well, I'm going to lose because you have like the perfect deck that you bought offline. Uh, so I do think that these secondary markets end up creating a sort of perverse system where the, the wealthiest player or the player who is most uh, liberal with their spending is going to win and have a significant advantage over – those who, let's say, are a little bit more practical with their money.
3: So you think there's there's also going to be a little bit of inflation coming in where the rare cards just shoot up in price? Wouldn't someone with a powerful deck feel tempted to, hey, I could sell off some of these, make some nice money, spread the, the good cards around?
2: Yeah, I mean, but when you see what happens with these secondary markets when they do arise, I mean, when we look at all the physical CCGs that come to recent mind, and Mind you, I haven't read the article you're talking about, so I might be misconstruing the whole thing, but it sounds like you're talking about a secondary market. Yeah. Um, Right. You've got your first edition holographic Charizard that was $50 when it came out of the pack. You've got the uh, Black Lotus that's worth God knows how much now, uh, and, and Magic, and these cards that just end up creating a culture around themselves, which wouldn't be such a big deal if they didn't bestow significant play advantages. And sometimes they don't, right? Sometimes they're not very good cards. They're just rare. But when you get that special combination of rare and powerful... You're going to end up with a card that is extremely expensive on the secondary market, but very useful, which is going to benefit people who can afford to buy it on that secondary market. And I think that's a problem.
3: We'll see how that plays out. It's something I'm going to continue monitoring. I'm fascinated by, by this. And there's always that possibility that Hasbro could embrace the digital world even more than just using apps. Finally, one other bit of news I, I saw and I, we sent out on the Twitter feed, TheExaminer.com had a very nice write-up about this year's Extra Life uh, fundraising. Now, it's something that, that we usually do. We associate with the 24-hour marathons that game stores have across the country, um, and that usually happens in October, November. But already they've, they've been bringing in money. They've been raising money at a greater rate than ever before for Children's Miracle Networks, uh, over $2 million, even now, even before the big uh, the push to come for Children's Miracle Network. Great uh, charity. I'm really tickled that we're a part of that. Chris, uh, where do we stand on our fundraising efforts this year?
1: Well, Drew, this will be the third year that we're participating in Extra Life. And we are really glad to be part of a charity that supports the Children's Miracle Network of Hospitals. Now, this year, we're going to do something a little different in order to be able to do some outreach to our online and our listener community beyond the tri-state area. So instead of just having an auction at a game store or at a conference, we're actually going to have an online auction where all of you listening will be able to bid for these games that were generously donated by publishers. And all of the money, 100% of the profits, will go directly to Extra Life's Children's Miracle Network of Hospitals. Now, You'll be able to get more information and details about how to support this great charity and get yourself some outstanding games by visiting BoardGamersAnonymous.com. And on the website, you'll see a big banner ad for this Extra Life charity auction. This will go for the next couple of weeks until Extra Life kind of hits its major day. And you'll get more information there about where to bid, when to bid, and hopefully how much to bid. And we're really glad to bring you all into this great charity event and join us in supporting some great kids.
3: Well, thanks, Chris. That certainly is great news to shout from the tabletop. And we're going to have uh, links to all these items in the show notes that we post along with the show every, uh, every Sunday. And if you want to catch the news almost as it happens, subscribe to our Twitter feed where we send out these uh, fascinating uh, bits of news. It's uh, at Podcast. And uh, we've got a lot of interesting curiosities and our own brand of humor that I know you'll enjoy. And, uh, oh, hold on. Quiet. I think there's a werewolf here. There's definitely a werewolf in the house. I have to close my eyes, guys. If I close my eyes, the werewolf goes away. So, guys, I'm going to have to lay low, get quiet. Keep your eyes closed for a while. I think I can survive this. I think I can. I'll, I'll catch you guys later in the final round.
1: All right, Joe. just remember to trust the seer. He knows who the werewolves are. Or if you can figure out who the seer is, of course. And now, our acquisition disorders acquisition to source, that's crazy only needs the base game nothing else but the base game the base game and the expansion see nothing else just the base game and the expansion and the promos the base game the expansion and the promos and of course the upgraded components why wouldn't you have the upgraded components so the base game the expansion so the for this week's acquisition we're going to talk about components. some games you definitely want to get to the table and let you know what greatness hopefully is going to
2: be hitting your table really soon daniel why don't you start us off All right, well, my acquisition disorder this week is a card game called Steamcraft. It is a deck-building card game for two to four players uh, that takes about 30 minutes to an hour to play, uh, and it takes place in a sort of steampunk universe. Steampunk is one of these aesthetics that has kind of jumped the shark in my view, but this game makes me question that because it seems to be about what every steampunk game should be about which is about the sort of like corporate empires that you get when you combine the post-industrial mindset of the heavy industrial aspect of steampunk with the sort of exploitative wealth of the victorian era aspect of steampunk and so what you end up with are these incredibly powerful Corporate firms that are vying against one another for economic control and stealing one another's secrets, blowing stuff up, and the like. I'm also a sucker for a good deck builder, and the art looks really nice on this one. Now, this is a Kickstarter game, so I haven't had a chance to tuck it even, right? But it will still be up when this episode airs because it's going to be online for the next ten days. So it'll be online until the 29th. So I would definitely stop by and give Steamcraft a look if you. Ever had any affinity for the steampunk aesthetic even before it got played to death? Because I think it's what a steampunk game should have been from the very beginning. Uh, so that's mine, a Steamcraft from Kickstarter. Uh, how about you, Anthony? What are you looking at? All right, cool. So I got actually two games
0: I wanted to talk about. The first of those is one that we talked with. Somebody at a Gen Con about, and they actually sent me a copy from Ape Games. And this is the new game from Scott Alms, it's currently on Kickstarter, and it's called The Great Dinosaur Rush. So, the whole idea behind the game is it's the 19th century, and dinosaur bones are being discovered all over the place, and these archaeologists are basically sabotaging each other to get ahead in the industry. The game itself and Again, this is with a a prototype of the game and a prototype of the rules, so um, not a full review, not going to give you necessarily buying advice on this. It's just based on my impression of it, having gone through pretty decent quality prototype components, but still prototype components. But the game is about 45 minutes to an hour, and the idea is that you're going to collect dinosaur bones from the field in front of you, and you're going to build a dinosaur behind your little shield over the course of three rounds. Each round has three turns, and in those turns, you're going to do a whole bunch of stuff. So you're going to collect the bones, you're going to move your guy, you're going to publicize, and there's this cool museum track where you're moving things up or down. This affects scoring later, but other people also get to move it. So you're going to work with people or against people to try to get it where you want it, and hopefully not where somebody else wants it to maximize their score. Then there are additional other actions you're going to be able to take. So there's bonus cards you can draw. You can adjust the museum track a second time. You can steal bones from adjacent spaces to yours where your guy is. You can dynamite spaces and blow up all the bones in that space and draw new ones from the bag instead. And anytime you do one of these bad actions, which are pretty obvious by what they're called, if you steal something or blow something up or sabotage something... Uh, you're going to draw not- notoriety tokens. And these are just randomized tokens with numbers on them. And the player at the end of the game who has the most notoriety loses points, whereas everybody else gains points equal to notoriety. So the score evens out a lot because the more of those bad actions you take, the further ahead you're likely to be. So you kind of have to balance how many bad actions you take. Seems kind of balanced. Haven't played it enough to-, to know whether how well this works. But the game's pretty quick. It's interesting. It's a new theme, one we haven't seen before. It is relatively light. It feels very accessible for families. And it is up on Kickstarter for at least another month. I believe it runs through the end of November, or at least close to the end of November. So if it sounds interesting, it's worth checking out. Pretty quick, simple set collection game. It's from Scott Alms, too. You know, it's got good pedigree. It's the tiny epic guy. And that one will be up for a little while from Ape Games. The second game I wanted to talk about, and the reason I have two is because this other game was one that was at Gen Con and it kind of jumped out at me and that is now actually available to pre-order from Europe. So I got very excited about it. It's called Nippon. This is from the two designers of Panamax and Madeira. And I talked about the other game that they released at Gen Con, Signore, a couple of weeks ago. This one is based in Meiji era Japan, and all the players are going to play as Ibatsu, one of the great four who emerge after the modernization of Japan and who have the most influence over the economy and the government And your job is to kind of build up the industry and invest and gain influence over the different Japanese islands and all the things that are growing in a late 19th century Japan as it happens so quickly. It looks a lot like Madeira and Panamax. From the designers, they've said it's not as heavy in terms of rules or content, which is good because those games are a bit brain-burny. I really liked what I saw in this game in terms of what it offers with the engine building and the multiple currencies and the... Limited options in terms of worker selection. It looks really interesting, has a lot of cool stuff going on, and the theme is very interesting, something that you know I've always been kind of interested in in that era. So that's very cool looking. This is one that I'll probably pick up. We'll see. It is available for pre-order on the What's Your Game uh, website, and, and they're actually shipping it from Europe. This is not in distribution in the U.S. yet. I don't know that anybody's picked it up yet, but if you order it now... I believe they'll ship you a copy from Europe. No idea what the exchange rate ends up being. I haven't looked this up yet, but I think it is available. You can check that out on their website or on BoardGameGeek. I think the designers posted that there. But it's called Nippon. It's out very soon, and it's out in Europe right now. So that one looks interesting. Excited to see that when it comes out. Uh, Chris, what about you
1: this week? So a game that I'm really looking forward to getting to the table this week is a game that's currently on Kickstarter. So as Daniel said, I haven't gotten this game in my hands yet, but there is something very unique about it. It's Kodama, the Tree Spirits. Now, this is a very simple, light, family, entry-level gateway game where basically you are building this wondrous tree that is going to be a home to one or many Tree Spirits. Now, the game starts off with a trunk card, and that's where you're going to be building from. And then as the game goes on, you'll be selecting branch cards. Now, this is really where the game play really kind of takes off because you'll take this branch card which actually has a branch on it and some unique things on it. it might have stars clouds it might have mushrooms on it or other little things that usually you find on or around a tree and you are going to play that card on top of the large trunk card in order to grow this tree Now, throughout the game, and there's three different seasons, there's going to be Decree cards. These are global effect cards that are going to affect gameplay. In addition to that, once one of those seasons comes to an end, you are going to play one of the Kodama cards, and that's going to allow you to score points based upon meeting certain conditions of that Tree Spirit. So maybe that tree spirit loves having mushrooms on the tree. You're going to count up how many mushrooms you have on that tree and score those points. As I said, it's a very simple game. But the fact that you're actually building a tree from cards, the artwork is outstanding. It's adorable. It's really kind of cutesy. And this game really plays with everybody. I can't imagine someone who couldn't play this game and really doesn't have much strategy or tactics to it. But it's just kind of a fun, almost like Takedo type of time. So if you're interested in this type of game, check it out. It's on Kickstarter. And it will be wrapping up on November 12th. And now, at the table with BGA. BGA. So for our At The Table this week, we're going to talk about three games that we recently got a chance to play and let you know if the game is a buy and you should run out and pick up this game because it's worthy for your collection or if the game is a play and it's worth your time and may, just may be worth being part of your collection or if the game is a dodge and you should avoid this game at all costs or possibly the dreaded burn and this game does not even belong in our industry. So with that said, let's talk to the guys and see what they've been playing this week. Daniel, what'd you get to the table?
2: Well, this week I got to the table a game that we talked about a long time ago on the show uh, and was actually one of the subjects of, I think, the first Kicking the Habit podcast. Uh, it's called Mahayoda. Now, Mahayoda is a beautifully illustrated game uh, set in a world populated by creatures from Hindu myth. Uh, and essentially, you're playing through a sort of celestial battle between good and evil, right? Between two sides of a celestial battlefield. Now, I don't, I don't know enough about the Hindu mythology involved to comment intelligently on its loyalty to the subject matter, but it seems rather thoroughly written. And every card, every character has some sort of further description about its significance. And that is about where the good stuff about Mahayoda. is. Ends. As a game, however, it's pretty seriously lacking. It's hard to develop any strong sense of either strategy or tactics, and the game feels very much like whoever draws the right random bunch of cards at the right random moment wins. Uh, it might as well be a roll of the die, a very pretty die, right, with lots of fun pictures and that sort of thing. But it's hard to get any feeling of substance going while you're playing this game because of how swingy it is this is not to say it's a terrible game it's just somewhat lackluster so i put it into the dodge category now if you really like hindu mythology it's interesting i wouldn't put it in the play category i'd just skip to the buy like if you want the pictures they're very pretty and it's it's almost art of its own but as a game it's just not worth your time uh, so a pretty strong dog for Maha Yoda there. It lacks strategic or tactical depth. Uh, it lacks player customization. You're pretty much set with two pre-made decks out of the box. And essentially, you're just doing the same thing over and over again. There's just there's, there's not a whole lot happening there. Uh, so that was Maya at the table this week. Uh, how about you, Anthony? What did you get to the table? We got a game called Isle of Sky from Chieftain to King to the table. It is...
0: I actually saw this at Gen Con and was interested in it. It was It's a new Mayfair release, and it's a pretty small box. It looks very similar to Carcassonne, and that comparison goes a few steps further. But just the box sides, you flip it over, you see the tiles, you see the landscapes. Um, the game itself is actually has a lot to do with you know those basic Carcassonne mechanics, too. And maybe that's the reason I didn't check it out or play it or pick it up at Gen Con. Um, I don't dislike Carcassonne, but it's it's one of those games that's been around for a while and played out and a lot of games do those similar mechanics a little bit more advanced but this game came out at the game night the other night I sat down and played it and it was very interesting for a couple of reasons so where it differs from Carcassonne and you're still laying down tiles every turn and connecting roads and laying out all your different terrain types and trying to get everything back to your castle it's all roughly the same idea there it's not the same as Carcassonne but it's the same idea but where it differs is in how the tiles come out how you acquire them and then how you kind of figure out the scoring from there because the game occurs over six turns and each turn the scoring is different and there are four different scoring possibilities so you're going to pull four random scoring tiles at the beginning of the game and each of those six turns it's going to be one two or three of those tiles that get scored so in the first round it's a second round b uh, third round a and c fourth round B and D. It sounds complicated. It's really not because the board does a very good job of showing you what's going to score and when, but it does require you to think about when to get certain things, when not, when you can hold back, when you need to rush on something else. Very interesting in that way. And then in terms of how you get the tiles, every turn you're going to draw three tiles from the bag and place them face up in front of your screen. And you're going to bid on two of them and ax one of them. And the one you ax goes back into your bag the cool thing is, is nobody else can see which one you're axing. So maybe they're thinking, "Ooh, I could bid on that tile." But you're you've already decided you don't want it and you don't want anybody else to have it. So it's gone. The amount that you bid on the other two though is going to be the cost. So if somebody else wants to buy that tile, they have to pay the amount you put on it. If they do not buy it, however, you still you lose that money and you get the tile. So don't make the cost too high if it's not something you actually want because you're paying for it. So A lot of the time you have to pay attention to what benefits other people, what benefits you, how much money you need, how much money you don't need. It's a lot of things going on. You're constantly watching the rest of the table. And because of the way the tiles are set up and because there's no text here, it's language independent mostly, you can easily see what everybody else has. And that's really cool. The best part about the game, though, is how fast it is. Uh, We played with four people and it took about 35 minutes and two of us had never played before. I think the game plays up to five, and it seems like it plays pretty well down to about three. I'm not sure how two plays. I figure with the bidding, it's probably not perfect, but with four people, it was fantastic. I think it would be even quicker if everybody knew the rules. This is a very fun game, very quick, that bidding aspect where every time tiles come out, you might take something from someone else, and someone might take something from you. It also means that any given round, you could end up with one or three tiles, uh, it changes dramatically based on whether people want your stuff or don't. So I'd actually give it a very strong play, borderline buy. If a space opens up in my collection for a light, uh, accessible, quick euro, which there might be a space for that, I'd give it a buy because I'm pretty sure it's pretty low cost, too, maybe $35. So very fun game, very happy to have played it. That's Isle of Sky. All right, Chris, what about you this week?
1: So I played a extremely heavy, deep, and rich Euro game called Scythe. I wish. Nope, I played Coconuts. Coconuts is a light family, more along the lines of children's dexterity game, and it's based on the Monkey King from Chinese mythology. And when I mean it's based on the Monkey King, it's really thinly, thinly (laughs) veiled based on the Monkey King. Now, if you've seen Coconuts, You probably know everything that you need to know about it. Basically, you're going to get a monkey that's holding out its hands. And in the game, you're going to put a little kind of rubber coconut. It kind of looks like the size of a large raisinette. And then you're going to flick the monkey's hands down so that it flicks back up and tosses the coconut into one of the cups in the middle of the player boards. Now, there are a stack of yellow and red cups, and this game plays, I guess, between two and four players, although I guess you could play a solo, where you're just trying to get the coconuts into the cup, and you're trying to basically play a children's version of Beer Pong. So, all of the elements here are very cute, and they're even a little bit fun. Daniel and I got a chance to play this. He actually won this back at Gen Con, and we were like, alright, let right, let's, let's kind of try this out, and... The first game was kind of embarrassing as we shot the coconuts all over the place. But the second game, we were kind of right on the mark. And as we were playing the game, we were knocking out the cups. And if you get into a yellow cup, it goes on your side. If you get into a red cup, you get to go again. And there's also action cards that you get in this game. You'll get two cards that can affect the other player's play. So maybe, for example, they don't get to play at all that turn. Or maybe they have to close their eyes when they shoot the coconut into the cup and out of pure skill and ability my winning coconut into the cup came after daniel played a dastardly card against me in which i had to close my eyes and trust in the power of the monkey king and the coconut went up did not see it and it went right into a cup and that was the winning goal So I played Coconuts and we played two games of it and I can't see playing it again unless maybe you really kind of introduce it to new players and you want to kind of chuckle at the fact that they can't get the coconuts into the cup the first time. But otherwise, I would say the game is probably a dodge unless you have very little kids who would probably really enjoy it. And then maybe it's a play. But I can see why people do like this game and it's it's kind of a fun thing, but for me and probably for any kind of serious board gamers, it's a dodge. And now BGA's feature review. So for our feature review this week, we're going to talk about blank other games. And this week's feature is going to be Legacy. Now, don't worry, we're not going to spoil Risk Legacy or the new Pandemic Legacy. And we're even going to play it a little bit light on the legacy mechanics. We don't want to give away anything about those outstanding games. But we're going to talk about some of the very soft overriding features that come into play when we're talking about legacy games. So there are no spoilers here about any of those games. And anything that you probably already know about legacy games just from hearing it broadly... It's basically what we're going to talk about here because we think that we have three outstanding games that truly deserve the legacy effect.
2: Daniel, why don't you start us off? All right, Chris. Well, uh, my suggestion for a legacy game, clearly the best suggestion, right, Uh, is going to be Dead of Winter. Now, Dead of Winter is, I'm sure everyone knows about, like the darling of 2014, right? Uh, A sort of... Uh, semi-cooperative, with a potential traitor mechanic thrown in, uh, zombie survival game, right? Zombie apocalypse survival game, where you have the small defended compound and you're trying to get survivors together and gather supplies and make it through. There's a lot of things that I think make Dead of Winter a good choice for a legacy mechanic. One thing is that they've got some established locations, so you can do things like, oh no, the police station burned down, so we can't go there anymore. Or the grocery store is overrun by zombies so we have to retake it if we want to go there right so there's a very natural way to do that you can also introduce new elements as new things happen to you in the game right so one thing that crosses my mind is that there's one crossroads card this is going to be a mild spoiler for dead of winter for one of the crossroads cards but those aren't really like hidden information anyway, so sorry. But there's a crossroads card which indicates that like the Chinese government is sending aid to you. And so you could have things like, you know, a Chinese military outpost that gets overrun or something, right? You could have these new places open up. You could have new people join, right? You could have a small squad of Chinese commandos enter uh, and join your group. You can also have a natural thing to do it. So you've got these character cards. So, you know, you have a character who passes away, gets bitten, right? Whatever, you rip up that card. Uh, And even better, right, you can pull out, like, the zombie version of them from the special pack, right? So you can have super zombies show up because your general got bitten and turned. You can have new genuses of zombies, like new species evolve, right, where the virus is shifting. So I think Dead of Winter provides a very natural and a very interesting place for the legacy mechanic to really take off. There's all sorts of room for weird things to happen, right? You could have, oh, someone found this weird abandoned lab. Well, we should go in there and look around and find stuff. And we found, oh, we found medicine. No, we found this. So what is this thing we found? Oh, no, we found zombie virus mark two. No. All right. Or you found a cure, right? And try to retake the land. So there are a lot of interesting ways that could go. So I think Dead of Winter is a really promising choice for a legacy mechanic. And the last thing that makes it especially nice, though, is that cooperative element limits the need for balancing with legacy issues. So, some leg- so an issue that happened with legacy risk, and I'm not going to go into specifics here, but you can accrue penalties or benefits with certain factions. And as a result, they had to make it so that you essentially can't just like, pick your team and go. But if you're all on the same team, at least ostensibly, right? so if you're all reaping the same benefits, you don't have to worry about rebalancing as much. Uh, also, you leave the option for the trader, if there is one, to play a really long game, right? Okay, maybe I didn't get you today, but I'll get you one day. Uh, so all of that's very exciting. Oh, man, you could have exiles start their own compounds. Ah, this is so cool. Okay, yeah, this has to happen. All right, so that is my suggestion for her legacy game, Legacy Dead of Winter. Uh, I'm really super pumped about it now, actually, kind of. Uh, How about you, Anthony? What are you thinking of?
0: For me, it's going to have to be one of my favorite genres of games. And I actually started thinking about this a couple weeks ago when Chris was trying to convince Daniel quite unsuccessfully to play Mega Civilization. So my thought was, if you take Mega Civilization and break it down into 12 separate games instead of one 18-hour game, how much better would that be? And then I was thinking, well, why wouldn't you just make a Civilization game into a legacy game? Uh, So the game I came up with for this was Imperial Settlers. Now, this could really apply to almost any civilization game. The reason I picked this one is because it's it's one of my favorites, and it also doesn't really care about history or any of that. It won't feel weird if you're completely rewriting or breaking history like you would in say nations or through the ages. But I also think nations or through the ages would make awesome legacy games. (laughs) So this is the one I picked. But specifically, I feel like there's so much cool stuff you could do and some really interesting twists you could throw in. The idea behind this kind of legacy game would be, and most civilization games don't really have much of a board. Uh, they, they usually have some combination of mini boards and scoring tracks and cards and personal boards. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. So you're not going to get like the one big board that you slap stickers on, but they're are a lot of different ways you could affect this game. Uh, to start with, anytime cards come out or are upgraded, you could add new powers through stickers or whatnot through that. The idea, too, being that technology would upgrade over time. So any of these civilization games that kind of take place within a given era or a given technology time frame, uh, like Imperial Settlers, they could evolve over time, which would be pretty cool. Another thing you could do is kind of take it from that prehistoric age or early history age and run it through the space age, like the civilization games do, or like how SimCity would do, where like if you finished SimCity and your guys take off into space, you win. And of course now that they pick up in the, in the other game when they go beyond earth, but uh the whole idea being that that's kind of the end, the end of the arc, the end of the story that you're telling. There, there would be ways to keep certain advancements and upgrades to your main player board. So Imperial Settlers, you have your main player board, which has the one asymmetrical ability there, like the thing you're allowed to keep. Uh, it also has what you get at the beginning of each round. So those could be upgraded or changed between each game. And then maybe an ability to store a certain amount of resources between games. Because as is, you can store them between turns in Imperial Settlers, but what if you could keep a certain amount of those resources between each game as well and then start the next game with extra resources? No idea how you'd balance this, but sounds cool in my head. Some of the ideas I had twisting around in my head, like things that you could throw out there as ways to mess with people or kind of the twist in the story. Um, Imagine if you're playing the game and an unknown new civilization rose up and overthrew a player. Let's say the weakest person, the person who's lost the most games, maybe you're in game five or six. A new civilization comes up, they overthrow them. Um, if the barbarians weren't already in the game, maybe it could be the barbarians, but it could be someone else, who knows. And they wipe out that other civilization. They wipe out the blast player's entire civilization and replace it with a slightly more powerful deck that is upgraded slightly further than it would be otherwise so it's kind of a catch-up mechanic but also a really interesting twist can you imagine the jaws dropping if somebody's entire civilization got wiped out and replaced by a new one there's a whole bunch of other unexpected events you could throw into something with a civilization of impact wars being started um more pitched battles kind of a one-on-one war um There's a lot of cool things you could do here, and I think it would solve that problem of the 18-hour mega civilization game because you could play one or two-hour chunks of that one large giant game and complete your civilization's long timeline (laughs) all the way up through the space age. Heck, you could even break down that giant seven-foot board into sections based on uh, what segment or chapter you're at in that legacy game. I don't know how you do it, but I think a civilization game of any kind would make an awesome legacy game. I know there's a four X coming out next year with Seafall that Davio is working on. So it can be done there. It can be done here. I'm looking forward to it. Davio get on it.
1: Chris, what about you? All right. So as you said, Rob Davio, Matt Leacock, man, what an outstanding game. So many different twists and components and different upgrades and how you mark the boards and different switches and narratives. You know, what I'm thinking about is doing something very simple, but something in a very unique way. So what I'm looking at is Anton Bowser's Tokaido. Now, we've talked about Tokaido before. It is a very serene walk from one side to the other side of Japan going across the Tokaido Road. And it really is a very serene Zen game. But with the legacy mechanic, it's going to add so much more. Now, if you remember what the Takedo board looks like, you're basically going to go across and stop at a number of different locations. There'll be places to make donations. There'll be places to pick up money, have encounters, visit the bats, pick up souvenirs, and eat great food while you paint wondrous panoramas. But... As one of these people journeying down the Tokaido road, different things are going to come up in this game. So for example, maybe an encounter spot might allow you to branch off and go off the actual Tokaido road. Now, actually, traveling the road of Tokaido is not just one road, but five different routes historically that people took. So it is keeping in the theme to branch off that one, you know, rail and kind of go around and really do see the scenery. And maybe possibly what they could do with the legacy mechanic, as you know, when you're going down to Kaido, you stop at each inn and that kind of wraps up a small part of your travels. So each visit at an inn can be one game. So basically what you're looking at is four to five different games in this Tokaido legacy mechanic. Now, each character has a starting ability and a different amount of coins to start with. But as the game goes on and you have different encounters, or maybe as you're visiting the temple, you can add special abilities to your character. Or maybe the encounter is a robber and you lose all your money. So you would actually add stickers to your character cards that would change the characters throughout the game. So sometimes the characters are learning something new and gaining a special ability, and or as I said, sometimes the encounters or the different situations that they're gonna run into actually takes away from the character. Now there's gonna be twists in this, in this Tokaido legacy because as you go on throughout the game and you branch off, you're gonna learn different things about what's going on during that period. And actually, in fact, there is a very famous story from the 1700s called The Shankmare, where it is almost a comedy of two guys traveling down the Tokaido Road who kind of run into different misadventures. And that's really what I would incorporate in this game, different misadventures that would lead to each individual character becoming something of a a substantial historical figure. Or... Maybe there's another mechanic where the panoramas are actually showing something in the background. Now, usually when you play Tokaido, you're just kind of grabbing those cards and throwing them down. But maybe when you're painting, you're actually picking up some detail or painting a figure in the background that's following you. Now, finally, what's really interesting about the legacy mechanic is not just marking up the board with stickers and shutting down shops and adding different character abilities or taking different abilities away. But it's the plot twists that come into the legacy mechanic. So maybe, in fact, the major plot twist to the Takaido mechanic maybe that, I don't know, maybe it could be a Sixth Sense mechanic, and these characters have been dead the entire time, and they're kind of reliving their past travels down the Takaido Road. And maybe the figures that you're seeing in the panoramas are actually the characters as ghosts. And they're just spirits traveling along this road, enjoying the times that they had. So this game, while very simple, opens itself to a lot of different possibilities, whether it's historical, whether it's spiritual, or whether it's just trying to accumulate the right number of experiences and items in order to match a final destination card that you get at the beginning of the game that nobody else knows about. So Takedo, an absolutely positively outstanding little legacy game. And now, our final round. Guys! Hey, I made it back. I survived. Woohoo!
3: Can you believe that? I I actually hid in the closet. And I hid in the closet so long that everybody else got got tired of waiting for me and they just left. So, (laughs) (laughs) last man standing. (laughs) It's all that matters. Earlier and Shout Out from the Tabletop, There's one other link that we sent out. I didn't mention then, but I thought it would be great to mention now. Um, there is this homecoming parade in Missouri at a small college there. The theme for the floats at this homecoming parade were board games. So people created floats that, that resembled different board games or had that theme. And I thought, how cool would that be to create our own floats for our little Board Gamers Anonymous parade? I think it would be awesome to build a float around Battleship. Not about the game Battleship, but about a giant Battleship. I would love it. Um, Gray paint is cheap and easy to get, so we just build a giant. You could do it out of cardboard, but awesome, huge-sized Battleship come barreling down the street, and we'll throw little red and white pegs at uh, all the people lining the street instead of candy. But I think that would be a lot of fun. Daniel, what uh, what float would you design?
2: Well, uh, the theme of Homecoming got me thinking about Gravwell, right, where the whole theme of the game is to escape this dimension and make your way back home. Uh, so I'll probably have to go with Gravwell. I mean, it's going to be a pretty simple theme in a lot of ways, right? You build your little spaceship, and I guess if you wanted to be, like, really clever, you could have people moving around on it, like, in gravitational patterns and... But that would get hard. So I'd probably just build a spaceship <laughs> because that's more effort than I'm willing to put into it. So, yeah, probably grab, Well, You know, just really just an excuse to build a giant spaceship. But, <laughs> you know, do we that's really need one. an excuse for that? Uh, Anthony, how about you?
0: Yeah, so for me, Homecoming is all about defeating the opponent, the football game, right? Uh, and what game is better at illustrating the defeat of your opponent than King of Tokyo? And what better float could you have than the smoldering ruins of Tokyo? Or New York, if you like the newer <laughs> version. You could have people dressed up as all the alienoids, cyber bunny, gigazor. Nobody would know what's happening, and it would be awesome. That oh,
3: all. man. Well, would save you having to work uh, like building a real city. You just build the ruins.
0: <laughs> right? It could just be a pile of trash. You let it on fire, you're
3: set. <laughs> I love it. Chris, what would be your float?
1: Well... The float I'm going to go with is the board game Survive, Escape from Atlantis. So picture this. You got this giant island with a volcano going down the street, and then all of a sudden, poof, the volcano goes off. And then different parts of the float kind of fall away from the main float and kind of cast out the different people that are on top of the float down to the street. So that okay, that's that's kinda tragic and kinda sad, but they're fine. They they can walk and get back onto the float. But then, of course, there's gotta be sharks. So the sharks come out and eat the people because that's alive. <laughs> and just to kind of wrap everything up, there's gonna be whales. So you got these little mini whale floats that kinda go around and knock out the other floats. So if you're gonna have a good time and you're gonna have a big float, it's gonna be survive and Maybe there'll be one or two people that survive, and they'll be happy.
3: I could see the dancing sharks, uh, you know, going around. Hey, it worked for Katy Perry, so... Yeah. But are you going to be able to come up with enough baking soda to, to keep that <laughs> volcano going? There you go. And that is
1: our final round for this week. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook. The more everyone gets to see that you are a Board Gamers Anonymous fan, the more people it'll bring to the table. Rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. The higher our ratings go, the more our podcast gets out to a new group of people, Check out our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. There are articles being posted there every day. Check out what's going on there right now. Be sure to check our guild out on Board Game Geek. You'll find out brand new things about Board Gamers Anonymous, what we're doing, and you could check out all of our ratings for games. Until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. We will save all of you a seat at the table. All right, great. Now let's just check the Board Gamer Anonymous Legacy game, and yeah, here it is, page 39. Page 39, 39. Okay, so it seems like we have to open compartment B, rip up Drew's chair, and see what happens on episode 94.